Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. All right, guys. In this little thing we call democracy, we have this other thing called citizen power. We just need to know how to use it, to be perfectly honest. Little TBH. Yet, if you feel fed up or confused by the U.S. government, you are seriously not alone. Most voters feel powerless, especially when lobbyists and special interest groups seem to control the levers of government more so than the people. But your voice and your vote matter. So when you understand how the government actually works, you can have a surprising amount of influence. Makes sense, right? So we have the thing for you to make this magic happen. And that is Citizen Power with our friends Natalia Ramos and Ben Sheehan. And it is their 10-day course that offers civics education that you missed or or you might have forgotten from high school. You know, you might have been skipping class. You might have been eating Chipotle. I mean, that's what I was doing. So we get it. And this 10-day course is free for the first five days. So before we get into that, let's just get into like what this course is going to give you. And it's not about the facts, not about the dates. This isn't just like a memorization game, which don't get me wrong. Like everyone loves a good Jeopardy moment, but that's not what this is about. It's about giving you back your power as a citizen to move forward the issues you really care about. So by taking this course, you'll learn what you should be taught in a civics class, but honestly, isn't. So your rights and your powers as a citizen, which sounds pretty basic, but a lot of us don't know them. How you can have the most influence over your elected representatives, real actionable steps you can take to influence policy, and honestly, the confidence and conviction to contribute to the future of democracy. So there are a lot of takeaways that are a part of this course, and they honestly make you the CEO of your elected officials, which you are, by the way, FYI in case you missed it. So it's time to make sure your voice is heard, time to dive in, time to have a little education moment. So head to the link in our episode description to start this awesome civics class. And like we said, get the first five days free by using our link shared there. Get rocking, get rolling, get learning. So do you need stress relief, sleep support, recovery, mood boosters, or how about the best of all, honestly, some new incredible skincare. 
Prima has recently been selected as one of Sephora's 10 brands that meet their rigorous clean standards by priding themselves on sustainable farming practices, being carbon neutral, being 100% clean with strict safety standards. Plus, for every product sold, Prima removes twice as much plastic waste from the environment. And Prima gives 1% annually to nonprofit organizations and is a certified B Corp. So quite literally, all of the reasons why we wanted to partner with Prima, bring them all to you, and of course, like buy their incredible products. And so Prima, as as you might know by now, perhaps, maybe, has amazing doctor-formulated, clinically validated, high-performance CBD products for the skin, body, and mind, and in just so many forms. So we have CBD supplements to bath bombs, body lotions, body oils, and skincare. Special shout out to my favorite is the Night Magic Night Oil for your face. You know, both Vogue and I swear by it. So that's how you know. But lucky for us, you can also enjoy the relief of the best CBD products out there because Prima is offering our listeners an exclusive limited time 15% off offer with the code GIRLGOV. So head to Prima.co and feel better every day. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. <laughs> because politics needed a rebrand. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, everybody. Happy Wednesday. Woo-woo-woo. I mean, we're going to start this off with some pretty tragic news, though. Let's hear it. Bertha, my beloved computer <laughs> of many years. <laughs> Bertha, I tried think and true. <laughs> when actually did you get that computer? This bad boy has got to be high school. That's crazy. Like, because when I open up our garage band, there are pictures from like our senior lounge, which is <laughs> concerning. <laughs> Photo booth also similar similarly has like artifacts. Yeah, from well, that time period. To give context, we Samantha and I. I'll probably like always call you Samantha now. <laughs> Samantha and I were recording this episode about an hour ago now, maybe less, and her computer fully like passed away, like it's deceased, and it's it's no longer with us. So quick rest in peace we had to kind mm-hmm. of like redo this episode which maybe it'll be better and that's what you i'm hoping it. for it's it'll be like be all for a reason more. yeah yeah it's happened for a reason because we're about to just you know do the best intro and top stories of our lives right now so it's um, okay but i will put one request out there for for the peeps if anyone knows where to get a good deal on any MacBook <laughs> or wants to donate, if you want to donate yeah. to this podcast, honestly, can you donate a computer to Samantha? Look, hey, I do have my laptop from early high school oh, at God. my parents' house. Should I try and turn it on? No, absolutely not. <laughs> honestly, I now want to I'm go through so that. curious. Okay, I'm going to do that anyways, but <laughs> yeah, if anyone knows before, like obviously, like Cyber Monday would be my moment for this to happen. Mm-hmm. Would be great. That's what we were hoping for. But the stars did not align on this one. So yeah, I'm not sure if we can wait till November for that one. Yeah, well, I mean, look, she's in her casket over here. Yeah, she's we're gonna have to bury her. She's actually deceased and you're still in denial. And I know you're mourning, but I'm just telling it to you straight. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, I guess but anyways, good news. news. 
Yes. Yeah. Mary Pete and his husband are having an actual baby. They're going to be parents. Baby. We actually don't know how they're having this baby. They're keeping the details private, but the best news is that they're going to be parents and I'm just really happy for him. It's going to be the cutest little baby. I can't even like, you just know, you just know. Yeah. This is going to be a nugget. I don't even like kids that much. And I'm super excited for this baby. Well, yeah. And let's like make it a priority to protect this baby at all costs. Like I can't have Fox news like coming for this baby. So we need to make sure we do everything we can to protect this child and, you know, parent right alongside sweet Mary Pete and his sweet husband. So yeah, we're all family. I guess not us inserting yourself into a family we were not invited to. It's fine. It's fine. We're just really supportive. But a lot happened this week, like politically. And I know that there's, you know, this big, big story everyone's curious about, which is regarding the crisis in Afghanistan. And we promise we will get into that and break it all down in our top stories today. But before we get there, we do also, of course, have an amazing interview to present to you all with an amazing guest. We have city council member from Iowa, Ashley Van Dorney, on the show today to give us a scoop on city council and what it's like to be a city council member, what it's like to be a young city council member, you know, ageism you face in politics, and also just a kind of look into Iowa local politics and Cedar Rapids, which is extremely interesting. So we will just get right on into it. And so without further ado, here's Ashley. My name is Ashley Van Orney. I represent District 5 on the Cedar Rapids City Council. Cedar Rapids is the second largest city in Iowa. And it's just a lot of people I think are really familiar with the University of Iowa, where I went to school. It's about 20 minutes away, 20 minutes north of the University of Iowa. So if you've heard of the Hawkeyes, we're very near, you know, nearby. But I, it's hard to explain because I, one of my majors was political science. Uh, I also studied psychology and a little bit of criminal justice. And I never had any intention of running for politics. I didn't, I wasn't one of those, you know, folks who grew up being like, someday I'm going to be president. <laughs> like that, was, I, I wanted to be a physician and, you know, life gets in the way and starts to kind of mold, you know, what opportunities you have and really what your interests, what are, what's realistic, as well as just like shaping some of the pathways that you take. And what ended up happening is I became really involved in really, you know, advocating for children in foster care. And so after, you know, what felt like a gut punch of Hillary Clinton losing in 2016, I decided that in 2017, I was going to take a, you know, a pointer from Bernie Sanders and I was going to turn back into my community and at least do everything that I could for my community. And what that looked like for me is I was on a warpath that everybody was going to know everything about children in foster care. And I was going to sing it from the mountaintop. And, you know, so that meant that I was going to contact, you know, all of my state reps and my state senators and federal, you know, members of Congress and everybody on city council and at the county level, everybody was going to know, I was going to convince them that, you know, this was the most important thing in their lives. And, you know, we do have one of the largest populations of children in foster care in my county, in Lynn County. And so it was something that I was very passionate about. On, you know, during that pursuit, I had an experience where my, my council member at the time did not respond back to me. I didn't get a sorry. I didn't get a, you know, sorry, I missed that. Uh, I didn't get any response at all. 
And yet I had a call from Senator Grassley's office saying, you know, I'm really sorry. I actually really do care about this issue. It's something that, you know, we've had other conversations since I've been elected where he's very interested in it. His office does work on these policies quite a bit. But it was shocking to me that somebody from, even if it wasn't Senator Grassley himself, that somebody from his office could make a point to acknowledge the fact that I reached out, acknowledge the work that I was doing, and yet somebody as close to me as can be in government did not do that. And so I became committed, I guess, to figuring out, well, what the heck are they working on? If they can't respond to me and I'm the closest thing to them, then, you know, I'm going to figure out what are they doing? What are they working on? And started, you know, really going to council meetings, started reading the the packets, the agendas following along and didn't feel like I had the best representation that we could have. You know, I, I felt like the former incumbent, and, and really my campaign ended up being about running on what I could deliver and not what somebody else wasn't or was. And realistically, I just felt like, you know, I had more stamina. I, you know, could use tools like social media better, communicate a little bit differently and, you know, was was willing to be out more in the community. And I felt like that's what we were missing, what we didn't have. And so from there, really, you know, ended up talking with people and just kind of decided as I was interviewing stakeholders, if everybody's satisfied with what we have, then I don't need to do it because it's not about me running. I never dreamt of this being the thing that had to happen. And not one person told me that, you know, the representation that we had was sufficient. Everybody told me, yeah, well, I wish that we could have this or, you know, maybe if somebody would show up more or maybe they'd listen more or they'd be out, you know, at the forefront on social media a little bit more. And so I decided that, you know, if there was nobody else who was going to do that because this, the incumbent was running for their fourth term, that at the end of the day, it might have to be me. And then it became me and just decided like, look, you know, I'm going to sing my story. I've lived in this district my, you know, almost my entire life. And I know it really well. I had gotten some advice that some people were saying to run for an at-large seat and I said, no, I, I'm going to run for my districted seat specifically because I've I've only ever lived here and, you know, stood up and raised my hand and ran like hell and was successful. So, yeah. What an amazing story. I mean, especially an amazing story of like civic engagement on every single level, like being pissed off at the 2016 election, taking action, you know, finding an issue you care about, reaching out to your representatives and then kind of learning more, realizing you're not feeling as represented as you should. Also, the fact that, you know, you considered running, but first like went back into your community and was like, is this what you would even want? I mean, all of it at every level. I'm just so impressed with as far as just like, it's literally just the perfect journey of civic (laughs) engagement. I can't even, it's it's all all we preach here. (laughs) Yeah, it's hard because I think there's a lot of people who have decided that, you know, that they need to, that they've always deserved a title. And one of the things that I talked about in my campaign is like, this is the mission that I'm on to be more civically engaged regardless. So whether I have a title or not, I'm going to be, you know, engaged in this conversation, engaged in my community and keep pushing it forward, but was fortunate in, you know, in my path that I was able to win and have, have run every day as if it's mine to lose. And I think it's really easy for people to forget that. And to just think that, you know, they deserve to be in these seats. And as soon as you take it for granted, you stop working for the people who put you into office. And it's really hard to do. It's hard work. There are some really crap days. And I say that lovingly. There are some really tough days where you have to be the grown up in the room and make very difficult decisions. But at the end Mm -hmm. of the day, it's always worth work worth doing. 
Completely. Yes. Love all of that. Well, can you also tell us a little bit more about the district that you represent? What are kind of the pressing issues and especially kind of looking at those at a local level and local solutions and stuff? So I'll, I'll tell you two kind of fast facts about District 5, and, and you'll probably forever remember them then. So Iowa gets a lot of presidential candidates, as people are aware. One of the things that I like to tell them was I would, I would give them a campaign donation of a quarter, and here's why. So we have a company in my district called PMX that's a metal manufacturing company. PMX actually has 70% of the U.S. Mint's contract. So they will kind of melt down and create these, these reels of metal. And there's some subtle differences, particularly the copper middle, that makes a, a difference between a Canadian quarter and a U.S. quarter. And that spool gets sent to the U.S. Mint, gets pressed out, any remnants get sent back and rinse and repeat. So what I always tell people as I would give them that quarter, and I have a a really nice picture with our now Vice President Kamala Harris, where I was giving her one. And I said, now, if you ever miss Iowa and if you ever miss District 5, you probably always have a little piece of home in your pocket. And so it's just something kind of neat to know is that like our story. Additionally, Mm -hmm. we have, yeah, we have a factory, kind of a a school of factories under the BioSpringer company wing, including Red Star Yeast. And what's interesting is all of those are housed within District 5. And BioSpringer is responsible for one in three loaves of bread globally. So if you've ever eaten bread, (laughs) it has something to do with District 5 in Cedar Rapids. And so it's it's some kind of like placemaking things that I love to talk about in that respect and just realize that, you know, look, we're really blue collar. When I was running in 2017, we had the lowest average median income, which means it's pretty mixed. We have a, a really big population base of refugees. We also have like the public health director lives in my district. My primary care provider lives in my district. So it's it's very mixed, but a lot of people are kind of industrial factory workers and, and I love them. I, I just love serving them every day. Wait, can you expand on the refugee population? Yeah, so we have a really big population from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and we we also have you know other populations here as well. But there is a, a subsection next to a mall that's in my district. It used to be a mall. It's kind of gone through many different iterations. And so, for example, the the inside was demolished, and now it's standalone, kind of where the the anchor stores were and has really been building back up over the years. But near there, in the Westdale Court Apartments, we have a really prominent refugee population. And what's really lovely about them is that they really look after one another in a very real way. And so they have kind of their own diaspora in the fact that like they move as a unit, even though they're very diversified in language and in in origin, but they have become each other's community. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah. to also like think about like the district and its different populations and different industries, what are some of the issues that you contend with? Like what is like you're sitting in a city council meeting and people are bringing issues to your attention? Like what are those typically? I mean, it's it's really varied. It's anything from, you know, approving for an RFP or request for proposals. So we might have some land. We want the best uh, proposal possible to develop it. And so we'll put that out. You know, people will give their suggestions. We'll pick one that we think is the best use of that land. And then we vote on that. Zoning, 
always gets contentious. That is probably one of the hardest things because you try and use, you know, utilize the best information that you have. You don't always make everybody happy, but sometimes that's what a good compromise looks like is that everybody kind of walks away a little bit disgruntled. Um, (laughs) Wait, sorry. Can you kind of also explain like what's zoning really fast? Quick definition for everyone. Yeah. So basically what your city will generally do is kind of map out the different uses of land, whether it's residential, industrial, what intensity of industrial is it a factory is it kind of like a machine shed you know so people are kind of doing car repairs or something like that they're obviously very different than a factory and my district has a lot of factories but it also has a lot of union bases and so that would not be the same kind of zoning and then you can have high density so you could have you know something zoned for apartments and then you can have something zoned for single family which should be kind of what you think about as a standalone home and so we have these maps that kind of you know somebody much smarter than i will will plan out a city of how it kind of marries nicely together and lays out and those if they get changed, adjusted as people are using them a certain way, as the city changes. In 2008, we had a major national, a natural disaster, the flood of 2008, in which my city, uh, the downtown was, you know, 10 to 15 feet underwater and horrific. And we're still rebuilding after that. But that also gave way to, you know, unfortunately, when homes were damaged and FEMA bought them out, it gave way to something that cities, you know, may never have. And that's this opportunity to rethink what we can use that land for. So that, for example, is something where we're trying to honor what it was in these neighborhoods, as well as imagining what it could be in the future. So zoning is is always um, an interesting conversation, but usually brings uh, a lot of butts and seats. Interesting. Amazing. I feel like I always like think about zoning too, just in terms of like, you're walking through different neighborhoods and being like, huh, like, why are all these buildings like only like three stories high and it's like oh because they're only zoned for like a certain you know usage and whatnot and like I especially feel like in the cities you really notice the differences quite starkly but I think our question on city council and the issues like the perfect segue to our I have a stupid question segment and this is we're bringing it back to basics like what is city council Yeah, so city council kind of simplified is the municipal legislative body of your municipal government. So actually, there's an artist um, by the name of Yellow, who has a really great rap video that kind of explains it out. But the equivalent on the municipal level of the president would be the mayor, right? So that's the executive body. However, our form of government and every city is slightly different. Our form of government has a a city manager form of government. So our mayor is a weak mayor in the fact that it's not a knock on him or anything like that. It's saying that he doesn't have a veto vote. He is one of nine. So we have nine people on our city council and five districted where we try to, the reason that those are districted is because we try to have people, at least five people who are in each different ward um, in the city. We call it district here, but some people call it wards. And so that way we're kind of representative. And then we have three at-large people who could live anywhere. And then the mayor can live anywhere as well, but they serve executive functions. So when we had, again, we, we, Cedar Opinions are some of the most resilient people I've met. And I have a love-hate with the word resiliency because I wish just we'd never had to go through that trauma. At the same time, like we're extremely tough and we rebound and we always find a way through whatever difficulties come our way. 
But that being said, we had this crazy derecho that hit our, you know, hit the Midwest. It was an inland hurricane, which like there's no, we've never prepared for something like that, but I've never even heard of that. Yeah. We all learned that word and how to say it. I said it wrong for months, you know, but it is something that we all learned last year and it's an inland hurricane that created, you know, some pretty high category winds, 140 mile per hour winds that came through and took out 65% of our tree canopy. I mean, folks, if you don't need a better explanation that climate change is real, climate change is real. It's happening. Inland hurricane. I mean, that alone screams climate change. And it was something that like, I mean, I was planning on riding my bike in that day, so I am really terrible at checking the weather, but then I realized that like, it was just supposed to rain a little bit. And I was like, that's fine. It'll be over lunch. So it went from, you know, maybe like a 30% chance of rain to this like torrential black skies, you know, almost all of our trees, you know, fell down in Cedar Rapids. So anyway, our form of government is, is that way. And it is something that, you know, I'm the only one in on my council who lives in my district. So I do feel, however, though, that, that I can hold my own and, you know, really work hard to represent district five. So, yeah. Well, for our next question of this segment, I mean, what do city council members do? Like what issues are they tasked with? I mean, you started to touch on it when talking about your district, but I mean, and, and we, you know, kind of got into like the levels and branches of government conversation is city council, like, legislative do you make bills are there bills on the city like how does that work yeah we do and by bills we call them ordinances but ordinances are our laws our local level laws we're really fortunate to have a mechanism called home rule and i believe we celebrated it's at least 40 years that we've had that now i will say that our governor really abolished a lot of the principles that we have in home rule and what that is is that we have kind of like state level, federal level principles, but home rule generally in, it allows us to legislate for what we need at home. So we might have some directives, but within that we can, for example, that's what allowed us to have a mass mandate when we had a mass mandate. Now our governor has taken that ability away. Your city council member, if you don't know them, get to know them. If they're not working for you, <laughs> vote them out or, <laughs> or you know, run for office. It's literally the closest thing that impacts your day-to-day, what your streets look like, what your sidewalks look like, where you can build a home, how big can you build the home. Everything that you can think of that impacts your city is generally legislated by your council. Totally. Moving forward. Moving forward. We'll pull this to something a little bit more young, a little bit more fun, all that good stuff. And honestly, the topic of being like young and fun and running for office. People, I feel like, often don't talk about what it's like to be young and run for office they're maybe they're like yeah congrats but they don't talk about the experience so really curious to learn about your race i know i went to a runoff like can you walk us through like what your campaign experience was like yeah i was really dependent on social media it's one of the easiest cheapest ways to get messages out there when you have earned media which uh, if you haven't heard that term it's basically that say maddie or sammy said wow i just saw ashley speaking at this event she's amazing i'm now telling people about her and and i didn't pay maddie or sammy to do it and they're you know sharing the word for me and so it helps to amplify the work that i'm doing um so i was 
really reliant on that. I can say that I think because of a lot of reasons, you know, my opponents were not active on social media and utilized that strategy and also just made it very clear that like, look, I'm going to walk as many doors as I can. I knew that, that I had the energy and the stamina to do that and kind of had my plan laid out. And it's interesting. I, I know you were asking about what is a runoff. And so if you don't, because we had three candidates in my race, um, if you don't win 50% of the vote plus one vote, at least, um, you don't outright, outright win. So what that meant for me is even though I was, you know, one of the, the youngest running, even though I was one of the newest persons kind of out there as far as in the race, I actually led the polls in the first selection in the general in November. And then it, we eliminated the lowest vote getting person and it went into the two top vote getters to go into a runoff. At that point in time, then I, I did win and, you know, I'll give myself a, a token here and just say that I won handedly. I mean, I think it put the, the matter to bed, but it was something that, you know, a lot of people were kind of talking to me and saying like, you know, treating me very paternally being like, you know, young lady, I think you might want to serve on a committee first, or it, there was an incredible amount of ageism. That being said, I'm 36 now. I'm not young. I didn't consider myself young when I ran the first time when I was 32 and one, but for Cedar Rapids, that was young. Me being elected actually brought the average age of council down by 20 years. 20 oh, years my God. brought the average down. And so it, it's something to realize that this is why it's important to have younger people represented. One, I've been working since I was 14. I've been paying taxes for most of that time because I, I earned enough to pay ta into taxes. That being said, you know, we at the time in 2017, we had four generations in the workforce. Now we have five. We only had two on council. It's important to have all four. We do have all four mm -hmm. now on council represented. I think it really changed every single perception of millennials and our engagement. Um, I don't want to be, I became the second youngest person to serve Iowa's second largest city, but I hope that that doesn't stay that way for long. The previous person that was the youngest was 31. So what I'm saying is that's a lot of years in between there that have not yet been represented on council. And it's mm -hmm. important. It's important that our age, our demographic, our voices are in there. We're paying taxes, we're voting. We need to be represented in all of those policy decisions. 100%. Yeah, I love all of that. Can you expand too on just like this experiencing ageism, what that even looks like and how you responded to it? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times still do. Yeah, a lot of times it's it's hidden in a word of, you know, how much experience you have. And I remember too, that somebody was looking into my voting record and they're like, well, she hasn't even voted in every single city council election, like since she's been able to. And I was like, you're right. I mean, actually those years that you're talking about, my late father was in a coma and I was exactly where I needed to be. He was in a coma for nine, nine months and I was exactly where I needed to be. And I don't owe anybody anything. Now, what I can do now is say, what would have been cool of me is to still find time to be engaged, but to have maybe voted by mail, right? So I use that as a talking point to say, there are going to be times your voice is always important, regardless of how difficult you know things are in your life at that time, but maybe try and find a different way where you can still continue to be civically engaged. I've also done things like you know putting council meetings on Facebook. So now they're on Facebook Live, so you'll get a notification. And I tell you, the first year that we did that, not everybody bought into it and thought that it was necessarily something that we should be doing. But one of our sexiest meetings, and I, and I say that, you know, 
uh, very jovially was our budget hearing. And it should be the sexiest meeting because that really is where your time policies and your priorities two dollars. And if you don't have dollars yeah. behind your, you know, things that you're prioritizing, it's not actually a priority. Totally. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's also just like such a good point. It's like you can find engagement at every level. Like it can be, you know, like going out to vote. And maybe it's not much that like next time, or maybe it's, you know, signing a petition. Like there are things you can do that are gradual or small that you can fit in and still sort of keep that going. And it's also like learned lessons of like being young. We have such a young electorate that's not engaged. And it's like, why are we shaming them for not being engaged previously if they want to be engaged now? Like there should be none of that it's like if you want to be engaged be engaged welcome to the party like cool so the fact that like in the context of ageism that's being used as like a talking point against you is so funny to me because like it's better late than never right but it also happens because a lot of the institutions are built for people who do not look or have you know my demographics so it's it you know it generally i had to have a constitutional amendment to be a woman to run for office let alone to have the ability to vote you know there generally are not people my age because of the fact that your schedule isn't your own i have a boss somebody i report to who generally controls and dictates my schedule i'm not saying they're a dictator by all means they're not but i'm saying is that my schedule is in my own i'm not an owner i don't make up my own schedule i don't have my own time that i can come and go as i please and i'm not independently wealthy you know if you look at a lot of people who are in these positions a lot of them are developers a lot of them own their own business so even Mm -hmm. just that on an income level is something that while it might not inherently be tied to ageism is because of what generally is happening when you're at the beginning or the middle of your career. So at the end of the day, you know, this position was not made for me and it's not made for the fact that I don't have a partner. It's, it's difficult to be a single woman in this position. I think the amount of predation, even as a single woman that, that comes your way when you're in this, let alone when you're a single woman and you cannot block anybody on your public social media accounts. So the amount of Mm -hmm. harassment that you also experience is, is very different. When I ask, you know, parts if they experience this they're like what the heck is that and i'm like yeah this is welcome this is what i get to mm-hmm. deal with all the time you know a bunch of married men you know deciding that i just had to know how they felt about me and no i don't i, I i'm not i don't care i i can see your wife i hope that you go home and have dinner with her and knock this off but i'm saying like tell her it's, i say hi right um <laughs> but it is it is that thing that it's just something that because of a lot of times the income the age you know people will Uh, mask it a lot of times by saying, well, I've got the experience. Well, look, the experiences that I've had in my life at the age of 36, at the age of 32, when I was running are just as valid to, to allow me to have a relevant voice at the table. So nobody should ever let that, you know, be the case. And experience doesn't mean anything if you're not being a good, you know, representative. And so there are, there are people who are younger than me who could run circles around me on social media and are constantly finding new ways to engage and get the word out and, you know, influence people and and get good information out there. And so what I'm saying is that age does not matter when it comes to this, but people will tell you that it does all the time and that's just their own insecurities. So don't ever let that stop you from running for office and representing your community. Yes, love all of that. I also just love the point too. I, I haven't really thought of that point of how when you are younger, you're obviously in the earlier mid stages of a career and that, you know, 
doesn't give you as much freedom as, you know, your old counterpart who has probably been retired for five years, 10 years, has wealth like that has been generated over the decades they've been alive. Like such a good point of that barrier for younger people to. And a lot of vacations saved up. Yeah, true. run for office, but also like have the time to even be engaged. I think that's so important to note for young people as well. Um, But moving forward, for any young listeners out there, what advice would you give them if they would be interested in running locally? Yeah, I um, in my first year, I was interviewed by two students um, who were in a women in politics class. And after that, after they were kind of doing this assessment of what it was like, I asked them, you know, what are they interested in doing? They they both said, I want to be president. And I said, I'm not trying to, you know, rain on your parade. I said, but that's a terrible goal. And here's why. You're both the same age. There can only be one every four years, but there's so many things that you can do to be influential. You can be an advisor. You could be an ambassador. You you could be a secretary of name a cabinet. There's so you could be a vice president. So don't run after the title. If you have a good why and you genuinely care about doing this work you care about doing it on the hard days you care about doing it on the fun days there's plenty of fun days too but there's a lot of hard days where you have to figure out some tough stuff and you're going to have half of your city half of where you live (laughs) say that they hate you because they don't understand because the communication burden is tough to get good information out there then it might not be for you but if you care enough to work through the hard days and they're not as many of them as, you know, as the regular days, then, then consider it because we need a lot of people who are willing to put in the work are willing to kind of, you know, renovate what it could be and willing to give that perspective. I mean, Cedar Rapids is one of the places, you know, for example, in Iowa, we always talk about the brain drain. And so there's a lot of awesome people who come through the University of Iowa through our state schools, and then they leave to to seek other opportunities because they're not finding it here at Iowa. Well, I've stayed because I'm trying to do the same thing. And what I'm saying is like part of how I'm doing that is through council, looking for opportunities to hear what my, you know, people who are, you know, relevantly my age are asking for and trying to build that into the city so that it is the great place that we all want to live. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like that really like knocks it out of the park in terms of thinking about like running locally and like why it's important. It's like, okay, what are the actual goals in mind? Like versus like, are you just chasing a title? Cause it sounds pretty. And like, I feel like there's definitely a lot of that, which leads honestly to the perfect like last question and that is like what positions are honestly overlooked like what's like honestly maybe it doesn't sound shiny or people just like don't really know about it but like actually has like a lot of power at a local level i would say being a city planner you know being there's a lot of because if you're the one doing that zoning and kind of realizing where like forecasting where the city could go in terms of its growth or its infill that has a lot of influence for sure but there's a lot of different positions that you can study in college, like city management that actually have uh, a lot of value. I mean, you know, people who are working on in, in parks and recreation, for example, you know, if you are, if you go into law enforcement, you obviously, you know, shape your community in that respect. If you become a firefighter, you do as well. But I would say that, you know, 
serving at such a local level, at such an accessible level is something that I take so much joy in because of the fact that like, I see these folks, I mean, where I'm going to next is a neighborhood association meeting. So I told them because I think they'll worry about me since I'm always there. I said, I'm going to be a little bit late. So just know that I'm coming, but I'll see you soon. But it's something that is, it's always worth doing. I mean, it is one of my greatest joys to sing the praises of my hometown, let alone, you know, my city on a daily basis and elevate those things that people are hearing from, even if it's, even if it's that a fine isn't realistic, you know, but then you get to do big things. Like in 2018, one of my legislative policies that became an ordinance was a massage therapy ordinance that addressed human trafficking. And we were able to close down 19 illicit massage parlors. And I've really worked closely to address human trafficking in Iowa. So, I mean, you get to do things like that as well. It's really varied. This work is something that I will, I think will take decades for me to fully process everything that I participated in, all the work that I did. And it just brings joy to me every day. I truly enjoy it. And so if, if that is something that you like doing, truly that public servant you know, mindset, please run for office. Yes, please, please, please. Must be so fulfilling. We definitely always try to encourage young people, especially young women, to make the leap and do that. So thank you for sharing your story. This has been amazing. Where can people find you? Social media, websites, what's the deal? Yeah, I do have a Facebook page. It's council member Ashley Van Orney. I'm on Twitter as at Ashley Van Orney. I also have an Instagram that's Van Orney for city council. I'm sorry that they're not all the same handles. They came <laughs> in different iterations. I also have a podcast myself where I'm trying to host, having heard that people are you know, a little bit frustrated coming to council that's so procedural and not having those community conversations called the New Bohemians podcast, where I'm having those conversations about our community, local issues. And people can also just generally, I mean, they can sign up for my newsletter if they want to see, you know, kind of a, a week look back and a forward look as well about what's going on in Cedar Rapids. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We like could not like sing your praises more like such an interesting <laughs> political journey so much civic engagement my god yeah thank you so much for having me it was really a treat well you guys on to top stories of the week because we have a big one and samantha's really excited to really break this one down she's been doing all of her studying she did an all-nighter actually to study for, for this top story moment so i'm really gonna hand a mic Hand the mic over. To I did. Samantha. And when I mean I did, like, we should just all be really thankful that I got off Bama Rush Talk because. God, thank God. It really was just a moment in time that we need to. You guys, Sam yeah. actually <laughs> completely converted our TikTok algorithm on our girl on the give account and like our feed. And there hasn't actually been one video that strayed from the Bama. What is it called? Bama rush talk there's not one video that's that isn't in that category now so our algorithm has completely been shifted and altered due to sam's (laughs) just absolute binge of the content so it's fine like i just you know it's one of those things like just trying to be in college on you know like yeah you're having a life like kkg Mm, no okay (laughs) but nonetheless competitive southern rash aside Obviously, we want to talk about Afghanistan. So this issue is complex, and I want to preface this by no means are we going to be able to cover this at every angle, and we really want to have a 
expert come on and talk about this fully. So do bear with us, but we want to be able to give you guys the gist of what's happened so far, what is happening, what might happen going forward. So again, another little, it's not even trigger warning, just warning is that by the time this comes out, there will likely be additional changes to the situation there as it's really evolving hour by hour. But basically what has gone on is President Biden had decided to execute on a agreement made between the U.S. and the Taliban under the Trump presidency to remove all U.S. military and U.S. military occupation from Afghanistan. The original date was for this past spring. After evaluation, it seemed as though that was not going to be possible, not feasible to make happen safely. A new date was negotiated for end of summer, September. As we crept closer to that, of course, the intelligence was coming out as to, okay, what is going to happen? What does this look like? The U.S. leaves. What happens in Afghanistan? Does the Taliban take back the land that the U.S. was essentially guarding, helping the Afghanistan forces, you know, protect what was going to happen. And in those conversations, and there's going to be so much analysis and so much red tape, I think, pulled back and analyzed in the weeks to come. The intelligence was that Afghanistan would fall back in the hands of the Taliban. But the estimated time frame for that was essentially 2022. It was looking like six months for this to happen. And while that was, of course, not exactly welcomed, well, we like to think not welcomed with open arms, but the concept was to hopefully give enough time for those citizens that had helped the U.S. in efforts overseas to be able to apply, be processed for visas and come to the United States for any evacuations needed to be done safely et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, that timeline over this weekend, as we saw this absolutely develop rapidly beyond rapid, was not the case. As we saw city after city fall to the Taliban with Afghani army putting down their weapons, some selling the weapons provided via U.S. funding and training over the years to the Taliban. We also had a range of different scenarios, people putting down their weapons, negotiating with local leaders in the Taliban to try and, you know, prevent bloodshed as much as possible. During this time, as they inched closer to Kabul, the Afghanistan, the Afghani president decided to book it. And when I mean book it, take some cars and some cash and hop in a ride out of the country essentially surrendering the city and the capital to the Taliban. That said, the vice president is still active, is trying to make a play for the fact that he is now the de facto leader. Of course, the Taliban does not recognize this. There is one region currently in Afghanistan that is what we call contested, meaning that the Central or what was the central Afghani government is saying that, no, this is not taken by the Taliban. We run this. And it is interestingly been a region that 
in the 90s, the Taliban was not able to take back in previous civil wars. The Soviets were not able to ever take this particular region, which is entirely landlocked like the country, but is a little bit more central in location. So we'll see what happens there. But apparently negotiations are underway in terms of making a retaliation and arming guerrilla fighters in that way. So that is a little bit in terms of what's happening on that end. Of course, we're seeing all these horrifying images coming out of citizens running towards the airports, trying to get on planes, trying to escape, trying to get out of the country with the Taliban coming back in. And part of that is begs the question, okay, if you're not familiar with Southeast Asian and or Middle Eastern politics, who is the Taliban? Like, why, why do they matter? Why are they relevant? Who are they? I feel like this is one of those things where millennials, older millennials are really familiar with this subject or not really, but enough because of 9-11 and Gen Z might not be as familiar with it, not living through 9-11. It's one of those just things like, I, I think, I mean, I could opine on that for a long time, but I won't. So anyways, give you a little bit of like the scoop as to who they are. We're going to start in 1994 and basically the Taliban was made up of former Afghan resistance fighters. So that's where like the U.S. in the past has come in. Again, subject for an analyst or expert that we bring on. So TBD. But basically these resistance fighters fought in the invading Soviet forces in the 1980s. So this region has really been complex for so long and seen a lot of outside forces come in and out. But after the Taliban captured Kabul in 1996, they put in place incredibly strict rules, like strict doesn't begin to even cover it. So this especially was related to women, minorities, but women had to wear head to toe coverings. They weren't allowed to study or work and were forbidden from traveling alone. I mean, this goes outside of this as well, outside of women, TV, music, non-Islamic holidays were also banned. So incredibly stark contrast to what is existing there today. So in those two decades since Taliban rule was pushed out in 2001 and they were ousted from power, they have been really waging an insurgency against the allied forces and the U.S.-backed Afghan government, trying to push back, trying to retake over. So interesting push-pull that's continuing to happen. But where this comes in for the U.S. is 9-11. So what was their role in these attacks? Like, how did this happen? So basically, September 11th killed more than 2,700 people, was orchestrated by al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden. And he was operating from inside of the Taliban-controlled Afghanistan at the time. So less than a month after the attack, the U.S. and allied forces invaded Afghanistan aiming to stop the Taliban from providing a safe haven to al-Qaeda and to stop al-Qaeda from using Afghanistan as a base of operations for terrorist activities. So, so basically, this 20-year 20, 20 war broke out as a result. So this started under George Bush, so Michelle Obama's VFF, but started under him. Then Obama, of course, elected office. His campaign promises seems to be a theme amongst presidents of the last 20 years said he is going to withdraw troops from the region, from Afghanistan. Instead of doing that, he was advised by the Pentagon to actually add more troops. Popular opinion has been and has been for quite a long time on both sides of the aisle to withdraw troops. Feelings of sort of the Vietnam of why are we there? What are we fighting for? The essentially feeling of like lost sight of the mission. Well, and I think like we lost the war like a long time ago. And totally, I think 
as Americans, we expect to be this like military powerhouse and probably that we couldn't accept the fact that we just couldn't beat the Taliban. This is not a new strategy for insurgents in the region because their mentality is that they have all the time in the world and they will sit there for years and decades and hundreds of years until they win. And the U.S. with taxpayers and almost like a democracy and people that are keeping them accountable, they don't have the luxury of time because people are like, excuse me, where's the result? Where's my money going? They're asking questions. I'm not giving a a plus to either end of that. There's no endorsement on my opinion there. But the, the point was that they have the essence of time and time beats anything. And apparently a similar comment was made about Vietnam as well, which is really interesting. And so there've been a lot of comparisons on both sides of the aisle on that. They are completely different wars with different original goals. But the interesting thing is Vietnam is the longest US war prior to Afghanistan. So of course it between that and some of the imagery, there's a lot of like sort of shared, I would say, optics to it. Yeah, totally. And so you have oh, Trump also inheriting this situation and having troops overseas. And he, one of his big campaign promises was that he was going to bring the troops home. Americans don't want to be involved in these foreign wars anymore. They don't want to be playing police chief of the world. They want to come home. They come to this agreement. Made agreement with the Taliban. Exactly. Made an agreement with the Taliban that they were going to leave Afghanistan and they were going to withdraw their troops by May. And that timeline got pushed back by Biden. And here's where the questions, though, come in. And I have a lot of questions, too, that make me go, what the literal fuck, to be honest, is you obviously have all these people that have been helping the U.S. for years, interpreters, journalists like activists. I mean, the list goes on and on as to these people, obviously, or maybe not obviously, but these are not friends of the Taliban. They are not going to get along. The Taliban does not want them to exist, has a horrible reputation of human rights abuses. So obviously, not obviously, but the reaction should be from the U.S. is to get these people out, to give them refugee status, to process their applications, get them out of the country and do it safely. They had what seems like enough time to do this. They did it backwards. Like they pulled out troops before they pulled out and saved a lot of these people who are in Afghanistan and have been there, be it the citizens, be it the journalists, be it the ambassadors. You know, they they pulled out troops before pulling out these kind of vulnerable populations, which makes no sense. Totally. And to top it off by announcing when they were doing this and how they were doing this, I mean, they only emboldened the Taliban to get moving on their plan. I mean, like I said, they had the essence of time. They're like, okay, when's their best move? And we handed it to them, in my opinion, on a silver platter. And the Trump deal that he made was, hey, we'll pull out in 2021 in May. That's what he agreed on. And then obviously Biden pushed it back. But the deal was, let us get out and you know hold up hold back don't come in like don't interfere like let us pull out and then you know you can do kind of what you want situation and technically they did that but they just literally biden's execution was honestly very poor and did not pull out those vulnerable populations that needed to be pulled out so as we're sort of seeing it this entire exit strategy was fumbled what we can recommend in terms of some questions as to okay like how do refugees get refugee status like How do, you know, 
they get to come to the U.S. Like what's the legal sort of parameters for that? While this case has a little bit more of a specific parameter than SIV status, recommend listening to our episode with Layla from Freedom for Immigrants. And this is a great moment to call your reps. We'll even give a nod to a Republican in this moment is Tom Cotton's office has put out a statement and a request for any U.S. citizens that are in Afghanistan right now that are trying to get out to contact his office for assistance. As it speaks in this moment, the U.S. has said for the 5,000 plus U.S. citizens that are in Afghanistan to get to the airport, but they cannot guarantee safety to the airport. There are now checkpoints I mean, the list of issues goes on and on of things that could have been prevented. And to cap it all off, Biden did make a statement earlier this week on what on earth he was sort of thinking here. And he, you know, like that good old movie had no regrets with a capital A. Yeah, it's a mess. And I mean, it's just like it was a two decade war and we pulled out and it just wasn't comprehensive enough. It wasn't thoughtful enough. And it created an absolute crisis to say the absolute least. And then on top of it, you know, we had the Biden administration really not take the accountability we needed, honestly. And, you know, they fumbled the bag and this is what we all always want from politicians is to be able to say, we fucked up, own it, fix it, move forward. But, you know, his speech really wasn't taking that much personal accountability. He did place a lot of blame on a lot of other parties and those parties definitely had blame to be cast on them, but the Biden administration definitely had a big, big weight of that blame and did not take it. So um, disappointed for sure. I think we'll see kind of what happens there politically with how they handle this whole PR situation as well. Um, right now, his approval ratings have plummeted as president, so they're going to have to, you know, kind of roll back or re-strategize the way they approach this. But that's kind of the gist. We probably missed some points. We probably didn't cover enough. If you guys have questions, DM us. We'll definitely keep following the story. It'll probably be on our top stories next week. So stay tuned. Um, and again, DM us those questions if you have them. But we will move on to another story that has to do with our voting laws. All the debate happening in the states at the federal level about voting laws and such. So The Democrats have unveiled a plan to update landmark voting laws. So House Democrats on Tuesday put forward a new proposal to update the landmark Voting Rights Act, seeking against long odds to revive the civil rights era legislation that once served as a barrier against discriminatory voting laws. So the bill was introduced by Rep. Terry Sewell of Alabama and seeks to restore a key provision of the federal law that compelled states with a history of discrimination to undergo a federal review of changes to voting and elections. So the Supreme Court set aside the formula decided which jurisdictions were subject to the requirement in a 2013 decision and weakened the law further in a ruling this summer. So House Speaker Nancy Pelosi pledged to move quickly and said Democrats plan to pass the bill when the House returns next week. And she said, with the attack on the franchise escalating and states beginning the process of redistricting, we must act. And the push really comes at this time when a number of Republican-led states have passed laws tightening rules around voting, particularly mail ballots. Democrats sounded the alarm about new hurdles to voting, comparing the impact on minorities to the disenfranchisement of like the Jim Crow laws. 
but they have struggled to unite behind a strategy to really overcome this really near unanimous Republican opposition in the Senate. So the new House bill known as H.R. 4 is named after Georgia Congressman and civil rights leader John Lewis, who died last year. And Sewell announced the introduction of the bill in front of Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, where Lewis was beaten during a civil rights march in 1965. And the Voting Rights Act was signed into law a few months later. So Sewell said, we're not looking to punish or penalize anyone. This is about restoring equal access to the ballot box. It's about ensuring that Americans know their vote counts and their vote will count at the ballot box. The Lewis bill outlines a new expanded formula that the Department of Justice can use to identify discriminatory voting patterns in states and local jurisdictions. And those entities would then need to get DOJ approval before making any further changes to elections. The bill also includes a provision designed to counter the summer's Supreme Court ruling that made it harder to challenge potentially discriminatory voting changes. So this battle for voting rights continues, especially before we got a midterm election coming up next year. So hopefully, you know, we can get some progress here. But again, it's, it's definitely a battle. And we will see how this plays out. And like always, keep you updated. But those are the top stories of the week. That is this episode. And shameless plug for our brand ambassador program. I don't know. Absolute shameless plug because they are amazing. So shout out to all of our brand ambassadors who have been so amazing and awesome. And we are super excited for our next month, aka good old September coming right up around the corner and our networking event that is provided exclusively for our brand ambassadors. For those of you who are curious and want to learn more, I'll give you a little teaser, but basically a part of our brand ambassador program is a core networking moment where we connect our brand ambassadors with a leader in the political space to tell them all about their particular job, how they got it, what all of the insights are that they have in the industry and provides her that direct connection. So if you are sitting here, you're running, you're walking, you're skipping, maybe you're hopping on one foot. I don't know why I can't see you, but imagine whatever you're doing and you're like, you know what? I'm curious about political careers in some way. Then this brand ambassador program is definitely for you. We have a lot of other things cooking in the kitchen that are only going to further leverage, bolster all those fun buzzwords, that ability to network into the political space. So like I said, link is in bio. Like I've said that 5 million times, but seriously, it's in the bio. It's in the description of this episode and you should sign up. Well, another aspect that we definitely have to plug to just join this community of like-minded women who want to a talk about politics more, learn more, have a bigger impact. And especially going into next year, we have the midterm elections and we plan to make a splash. So come join us and yeah, go tell your friends about us and about this podcast, subscribe, rate, review, follow us on social media. And you know the drill. We will be talking to you all next Wednesday. And don't forget, someone donated a laptop to me. Thanks. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. 
Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlonthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.